Well, it's till about 11.15. Let me say a few things about myself and we'll get started. Uh, I don't know if you're here on Tuesday. Uh, even if you were here on Tuesday, I'll send out to the PowerPoint if you like. There's a clipboard back there. So before you leave, if you'd like to get the PowerPoint for today, I put your name and your email address on there and I'll send it to you. If you only want to get the PowerPoint, indicate PowerPoint only. If you don't, I'm doing some writing and I'll pass along some essays and things that I'm working on. So that will uh, come to you. Plus, my wife and I go to Europe every year. And when we're on a trip like that, we give regular updates of debates and talks and the things that we're doing in Europe. I'm actually back in Germany again this December, end of December. And there's a major conference, student conference, that's multi-sponsored by the IFES, which is, InterVarsity is a part of the IFES. InterVarsity is the US member movement. And the IFES has student movements about 155 countries around the world. But this conference will be sponsored by the IFES, by Crusade, which is, goes by Agape in Europe, rather than Crew, uh, Navigators, and I think a couple other organizations. So it'll be a quite large conference, and I've been asked to give two seminars for it. Um, one of the seminars is the reliability of scripture, and the other one is entitled, Why Does God Want to Limit Our Sexuality? <laughs> Both of which should be quite... Uh, uh, significant topics for most students in, in, in Europe these days. So I'll be flying out the, the uh, actually Christmas Day from, from LAX and then flying back uh, January uh, 2nd. The, the, top, the topic, I don't need God, which is, uh, the, I should say about myself, I'm the director of a nonprofit called the Institute for Credible Christianity. For a long time, I was staffed with University Christian Fellowship initially here in the Bay Area at UC Santa Cruz and Stanford. But uh, later on, I was grad faculty staff with university at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. But we came back here. It didn't work out to stay with university. We currently oversee a grad student fellowship at UC Santa Cruz, which last, last year officially affiliated with university. So it's an official university uh, grad student group. Um, but we also, <laughs> we, but we started a nonprofit called the Institute for Credible Christianity in 2008. We moved out here in 2007 and started at that time. So I, I love interacting with skeptics and uh, students, and that's just in my blood. Uh, I have a PhD in philosophy and, and love that kind of interaction and thinking hard about uh, questions. So the topic today is I don't need God. <clears throat> it's a uh, uh, topic that sort of came to my mind uh, to do when I was at an all-Germany Easter conference this last year. And uh, the, there was a seminar on tough questions. And the person who was leading the seminar had this, this, this sheet uh, with what was writing down uh, what suggestions people gave of questions that they, they wanted answers to. And then he said, of these questions, I want you to vote to decide what are the top three, because we can't cover all these questions. To my surprise, the one that got the most votes, considerably more than any of the others, was how do you respond to someone who says, I don't need God? I thought, oh, okay. <clears throat> That'd be worth uh, working on. So that was where the, the topic initially came from. I want at this point, turn to someone near you, and the question is, do you know anyone who has told you this, I don't need God? Or even if they haven't told you that, there's someone who you're pretty sure has the attitude, the idea, I don't need God. And so the follow-up of that is, what lies behind it? Because when a person says, I don't need God, there's a whole variety of things that can lie behind that. 
So get next to somebody near you and uh, uh, talk amongst yourself. Do you know people who have said, I don't need God, or have that attitude, and you have a clue as to what lies behind the statement, I don't need God? Okay, you might be able to go on for a while, but uh, uh, why don't you tell me what, what kind of person you had in mind? Uh, who is it that has said this to you or has this, this attitude, and uh, you have a clue as to where that's coming from? Yeah. Independent. Yeah, yeah. I can handle things fine. You may need God, but I, I, I don't have to have God, believe in God to be able to manage. I, I, I could do quite well myself. Thank you. Yeah, it's a crutch. Yeah, you often got to say it's an emotional crutch. So if you need, you know, belief in God to help you get along, okay, that's fine. But I, I'm actually quite, I, quite fine. I, I, I don't need that kind of emotional crutch. Yeah. I don't need God to live by a moral code to treat people with kindness and to be a good person. I just need a moral code. Yeah, so many people have the idea that, well, the value of religion is that it may help people to become more moral. And if somehow fear of hell or something like that may help them, or belief in God will help them become more moral, that's fine. But I'm a good person. I don't, I don't need to believe in God to know that I ought to be nice to people and so I'm a good person. Yeah, that, that's a significant thing. Anything else? People who may have, may have started out um, believing God and then have some kind of a disappointment where God didn't come through for them, so then they say, I'm done. I don't need God. <laughs> yeah, so I don't need God. God never helped me. And behind God never helped me might have been some point when they really were crying out to God. And they felt like God didn't answer. So I don't need that kind of God. He's not doing anything. <laughs> a God that doesn't do anything, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't need that kind of God. I thought about it inside of this. There are three broad categories of things that might lie behind the statement, I don't need God. One is skepticism. So a person might say, I don't need God because he's not there. Or if he's there, he can't be known. So there's no point in worrying about it or thinking about it. Uh, a person might say, <clears throat> uh, I don't need to believe in fairy tales. You believe in this sort of thing that you made up, but I don't, I, I don't need that. So there's a skepticism. Just I, they don't believe it's true. I don't need it. Another category I call the antagonist. A person who says, I don't need God because either I don't like God, God of the Bible, so maybe they believe in some kind of vague idea, but I don't like your God, and I don't need God. Or maybe there are doctrines that they don't like. Or maybe there are Christians that they've met and that they don't like, and uh, no thank you, I don't, I, don't, I don't want that. So there's a, some antagonism, uh, hostility behind the statement, I don't need God. And they may have had some, some very negative experiences I've had a couple different occasions where I've talked to people and they said when they were in high school and church, they would ask questions and they would be told, don't ask those questions. You just have to believe. So they felt like they were in a straitjacket. You know, you can't ask any questions. You just have to believe. They went to university and at university, suddenly, you know, they could feel free to ask these questions. Ah, breath of fresh air, liberation. 
in response to that kind of person, I'll say, we, and something I mentioned on Tuesday was, you know, that's, that's not everyone's experience. That wasn't my experience. So I mentioned Tuesday that I grew up in an environment which my father was really quite, gave us the freedom to think about what was true and what was not, encouraged us to, to think deeply. When I decided to major in philosophy at Stanford, my parents didn't say, oh, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> Study philosophy, you'll lose your faith. <laughs> no, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. <clears throat> the third category is the person just content with who they are. I'm doing fine. I don't, I don't need God. Um, uh, I've got better things to do on a Sunday morning than go to church. Or I'm not a church-going kind of person. Uh, uh, I'm fine. The, the, I'm a good person, content with who they are. Um, there's no real motivation for them to want to believe. So the, I don't need God can reflect that. Uh, <clears throat> good question to ask a person, particularly if they had been a Christian in the past, or so they had been a Christian but are no longer a Christian. Ask the question, do you wish the Christian faith were true? Again, this is not, I think I mentioned on Tuesday, this is a great question to ask. Because the person might say, yeah, I do wish it were true. That means they haven't, in hostility, turned away from the faith, but they simply found they could no longer believe. I felt the arguments against belief in God were such, such that they could no longer believe. And the person says, yes, I wish it were true, then there's an openness there. I'll, I'll say to the person, I don't know that I can persuade you that it's true, but I think I can uh, persuade you that there's a better case for it than you currently think there is. And if you'd like to have some ongoing discussion about it, uh, that would be perhaps mutually interesting, and uh, I think you would find it interesting. Here are some responses just sort of the uh, person might give. I'm a good person, or I have no need for belief in life after death. I'm content that this is all there is. I can live with that. A belief in God is an emotional crutch. I don't need it, as we mentioned. I have no need for fairy tales. I only believe that which is where there's good evidence. Church isn't my thing. I have better things to do on a Sunday morning. God has never done anything for me which, again, may have some, as I said, uh, some experience where they felt that God didn't, didn't come through for them. I don't want God or anyone else telling me what to do. There's a quite famous philosopher, Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist. I actually mentioned him later on in my talk, who has said quite specifically, quite clearly, I do not wish there to be a God. <laughs> I do not want there to be a God. Uh, I don't want any being out there telling me what to do or what I should believe. Uh, I believe in something, but I don't want your God. Belief in God has done more harm than good. I was in uh, Europe, I may mention this Tuesday, in Europe, where I met a woman who said, uh, if George Bush, this was during the Iraq War, if George Bush was a Christian, and it's this Christianity lies behind the kind of, kind of things he's doing, then Christianity must be a really dangerous thing. <laughs> people associate Christianity with the people that call themselves Christians, and that can be an awful lot of negative baggage. Uh, for people who say, well, Donald Trump's a Christian. Well, he, he says he's never, been, never had anything he needs to ask repentance for. Uh, we get people with sex scandals, televan televangelists, that kind of thing, or people pocketing money for themselves. And those kind of experiences can give people a really negative image uh, about the faith. 
and they can believe that it does more harm than good. When a person says that kind of thing, and some atheists say, the world would be a much better place if we get rid of religion. After all, religion creates conflicts and wars between people. But I say, actually, the fact of the matter is that if a person has a strong worldview, a strong ideology, strong beliefs, they both have the capacity for doing things that are worse than they would do if they didn't have those beliefs. And they have the capacity for doing things which are much greater and better than they would if they didn't have those beliefs. So it is both, both ends of the spectrum. If you get rid of religious beliefs, then people become much more, oh, I'll do what's in my own interest. Uh, they won't make major sacrifices. People who make major sacrifices do so because they believe it really is the right thing to do or because they believe there's, there's, there's some God out there and that's, you know, there's the relig religious beliefs are strong motivators. It used to be that atheists would say, religion doesn't really motivate. What really motivates is your material needs. Those are the things that motivate you. But of course, when it comes to the Twin Towers, the, the, the terrorists who flew the planes in the Twin Towers, they were religiously motivated. They would not have done that if it weren't for the religious beliefs they had that they were going to be entering into paradise and they were doing some wonderful, glorious thing for, for, for God. So the question isn't whether religious beliefs are, are, are powerful motivators. The question is what lies behind it. And if you look at the life of Jesus and build your life on his teachings, you've got the foundations for hospitals, for Salvation Army, for all these, all these wonderful humanitarian organizations, almost all of which were very strongly religiously motivated. Even something like uh, the National University of Mexico City was founded initially by Catholic priests who wanted to be able to teach the Native Americans how to be able to read and be able to read the Bible for themselves. Okay. So even there you have these kinds of things taking place where people put a great deal of effort into something because of their religious beliefs. Here I sort of color-coded as skeptic, antagonist, and, and contentment, sort of how I place those different kinds of comments. And I'll say here, when people say, can someone close the door the, the, for the... So there's a legitimate criticism that people have. When people say, I don't need belief in God, I don't need an emotional crutch, you ask, what is it that they're hearing that gives them the idea that Christian faith is an emotional crutch? Well, it's, it may be from hearing people talk about conversion experience, the person was a drug addict, or the person was a, lived a life of crime and their life was dramatically turned around. Okay, so the person was in the gutter. <laughs> they were facing some long-term sentence in prison, uh, and when you're in the pits, well, okay, then God lifts you out. But I'm not a drug addict. I'm not, <laughs> so it doesn't really relate to them. And also, oftentimes, when people talk about the gospel, they talk about the peace which God will give. Well, it is true God gives a peace, but uh, there's lots of other people who talk about peace. I think Buddhism actually does a pretty effective job of giving people a sense of peace. If you buy into Buddhism and you get into meditation, like it can help you be peaceful. But Jesus' aim was not to have his disciples be peaceful. He never sort of set them out, ah, oh, now try to relax. <laughs> no, for Jesus, it was doing God's work and proclaiming God's truth and being out there advancing the, 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 the gospel and bringing people back into relationship with God. And I think all too often the church has had this, this message that we should become a Christian because look at all the emotional benefits we'll get. They don't talk about the cost. 
And I think that actually when you ask why is it that most churches have more women than men in them, I think it's because churches aren't challenging enough to men. They're not saying, this is, this is what God's calling you to do, a wonderful challenge that you can have. I was in university during the Jesus movement. And in the Jesus movement, there was roughly equal number of men and women. It wasn't more women than men. And why was that? Well, people who were part of the Jesus movement were, <laughs> we are out there, we're, 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 we're standing forth with the gospel. And it was during the same time as the Vietnam War, and you were standing forth protesting the Vietnam War. Well, as Christians, we can stand forth and be, have this courage to, to speak about our faith. So we oftentimes communicate a gospel which doesn't cost you anything and only has emotional benefits. Yes, there are emotional benefits, but no, the gospel actually does cost quite a bit. And when people say, I don't need an emotional crutch, part of the criticism is that we communicate that it'll give you an emotional crutch. It won't require anything of you. It'll just make your life easier. There was a, there was a poll done of high schoolers, teenagers, back in 2005, the spirituality of American teenagers. And the sociologists who did this were surprised at how uniform the answers were, regardless of what kind of religious background the person was from, whether the person was Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, they asked the question, what do, you, what do you think God requires of you? And overwhelmingly, the most common response was to be a nice person. Well, that's a good starting point. <laughs> yes, God wants us to be nice. But just being a nice person is that God, God asked quite a bit more than just being a nice person. When they asked, what do, God, what, do you, what do you expect God to do for you? Overwhelmingly, the most common response is to give you peace. They asked the question, do you expect God will do much? Well, no, not really. <laughs> so they don't expect God's actually, God, God helps those who help themselves. So the idea amongst American teenagers is, well, belief in God is fine. It can give you a peace. They did ask a question related to, if you're in a really tough situation, suppose you're facing an exam and you're afraid you might fail this exam, would you pray? Oh, yeah, okay, then I pray. So in the trenches, uh, people are, are much more apt to call out to God than when things are going uh, smoothly. But it's a superficial you know, kind of religiosity that I think we're guilty of perpetuating sometimes uh, in evangelical churches. Uh, the disciples did not follow Jesus for emotional benefits. Jesus told them, you follow me, and you need to carry your cross. What that means is you need to be willing to die every day. You know, some of the movies, uh, today is a good day to die. <laughs> and they came out in the, in the, uh, the Tolkien trilogy, sort of, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to expect to die. Well, actually, you know, as Jesus said, when you follow me, you, you can expect that that may happen. Now, the, the likelihood of it happening is much less for us than it was for the original disciples, but uh, Jesus actually calls his disciples to give themselves totally to him. And I, for one, when I, when I in, in university, just got really fired up for Christ, it was because of the challenge that Jesus was giving to us and the challenge that I, we were talking amongst ourselves. And uh, that, to me, was was powerful motivator for me to want to be out there and serve Christ. Uh, we think about what motivated us individually to become Christians, and people's stories are going to vary, vary a lot. But in terms of the positive uh, impact of serving others, that ought to be something when people look at Christians, how, look how much they serve others. 
there is a book by Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure, Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. And his point was it went relationship to relationship, person to person, but it's because when they saw what they saw in Christians, they admired. He said there was a time when in the Roman Empire, there's a major plague that swept through. And the wealthy people all fled to get away from others to try to protect themselves from the plague. But Christians stayed and they helped people who had, succumbed, who had the plague. And the fact that Christians were willing to serve others even at risk of their own life was powerful, and the, there was an increase in the number of Christians as a result of that. There's a, a Roman historian writing towards the end of the first century, and he comments how strange it is to him that not only do Christians not abandon unwanted children. I mean, birth control back then was if you didn't want a child, you would just abandon it. Um, but it said not only do Christians not abandon their children, they take in abandoned children. That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it's a huge investment to try to raise a person, and if you're not your own son or daughter, why in the world would you do that? So it's the teaching of Jesus about how we're to care for one another and to care for other people who do not believe, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that that's, that's a strong, very powerful, attractive thing to, to Jesus. And unfortunately, we don't, uh, I don't think we do all that well in demonstrating that. Um, let me just skip on a little bit. Uh, here's a quote from Jesus in terms of cost of discipleship. Uh, in fact, I'll, if you're outside of there, I'll, um, I'm finish, polishing off an essay that basically looking is at Luke, Luke 14 and asking what, what, what do you make of this? Jesus there, this is the ESV. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives two analogies. A person who starts building a building and is unable to complete it. And the other example is a person who's thinking about going out to war and realizes I've got, I've got 1,000 men and my opponent has 10,000 <laughs> Uh, I better count the cost. And so Jesus is saying, you need to count the cost if you won't be one of my disciples. Then he ends by saying, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, one can look at this and say, well, Jesus is saying this to people whose lives really were on the line, who are physically going to follow him. But part of what I do in the essay is I argue that, no, actually, this applies to us as well. Not everything. There are some aspects of this we're not literally following, coming and following Jesus, but we are following Jesus in that he is our Lord, and following Jesus back then would mean you left home and property and following Jesus, whereas following Jesus today typically does not mean leaving home and property, unless you become a missionary or, or, or something like that. But nonetheless, there's a radical cost that Jesus is calling people to, and actually when you, and, they are, and the essay is, is asking, is this insane? Because I think a non-Christian reading this would likely say, wow, what kind of megalomaniac is this Jesus? He's calling people to die for him, not just for a cause, but for him. You know, wow, who, what kind of crazy man is this? Well, from a Christian standpoint, if you start taking this seriously, who would ever want to pay that kind of cost? Why would anybody want to become a Christian if this is the, if this is the cost? So the essay will be talk, talking about uh, those things. 
In Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we tend to look at sort of the external marks of what kind of Christian deeds are you doing. And Jesus says, no, are you actually following me? Is this just your own empire you're building? Uh, so that's some legitimate criticism. Coming back to, uh, uh, well, here Jesus said, we promise life to the full. This is where he's talking about, I'm the good shepherd, and I will look after my sheep. My sheep know my name. Yes, in fact, Jesus does want fullness of life for us. But it's not fullness of life on our terms. It's fullness of life on his terms. So if we think fullness of life is just peace and prosperity and entertainment, no, that's not the fullness of life which Jesus is talking about. Actually, the, um, the studies done on human happiness, one of the most important components of happiness is believing that what you did in your life was meaningful. So if you believe that you've been living your life for the good, and not just for your family or for your immediate relations, there's a deep sense of satisfaction that you have about your life. And you ask, what constitutes happiness? There's the sort of superficial, you know, having a fun time and pleasant experiences. But the much more important part of happiness is a deep satisfaction with your life and what you've done and how you've lived. And the person who has recognized they've given their life to something which is genuinely meaningful, there's deep satisfaction in that. And fullness of life comes for us when we take seriously Jesus' calls, call to us to serve others, to love God with our whole heart, to love our neighbors, ourselves. And the extent to which we take that seriously, we actually will find fullness of life. The disciples at one point says, well, you know, we, they, Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. So he said, well, we've done this. And Jesus says to him, actually, uh, in this life and in the life to come, you will have family, brothers and sisters, homes, the kinds of things that you need, the kinds of things which, 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 which are dear to all of us in this life. You will have those things through the family of God. Your family or your physical family may reject you. But in fact, you will have blessing in this life and in the life to come. So it's not just all future blessing. Uh, <clears throat> let me so go on from this. Uh, one thing which is hard today is that people have a, a very negative view of, of Christians. And it's, it's uh, unfortunately, Donald Trump has been, I think, a, a huge uh, loss for us in terms of the winsomeness of the gospel. I can understand why evangelicals might vote for Trump, given you know, the abortion issue and some things like that. But from the outside, it looks like uh, Christians are just closing their eyes to his immorality, to his racist comments and attitudes. And, um, uh, and people look at Christians, boy, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Here they talk about love and caring for other people, and they stand behind Donald Trump. Uh, so I don't know how it's going to take, but it's going to take a lot to undo some of the damage which has been done by, this, by people associating us with Donald Trump and his life and are not speaking out strongly enough against the things which as Christians we believe are wrong that, 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 that he's done. Okay, contentment. Let me say a few things about the different categories and not open to change. There was a book uh, written by two InterVarsity staff. 
uh, entitled, I Was Once Lost. The basic thesis, and these, both these staff are actually quite good evangelists, and the basic thesis of this book is that there are several thresholds that a person crosses, and not just the threshold of becoming a Christian. I mentioned this on Tuesday, uh, but the one I want, it goes from, if a person doesn't trust Christians, they're not going to listen to you. So they have to cross the threshold of actually beginning to trust some Christians and be willing to take seriously what you're saying. There's moving from being complacent to being curious, but there's moving from being closed to change to open to change. And this is where the contentment thing comes in. If a person is content with where they're at, it's unlikely they're going to become a Christian. Particularly in a context where being a Christian has, has, has liability. I mentioned a person who's an astronomy, or rather, yeah, astronomy student who became a Christian during his fifth year in his PhD program in astronomy. And his concern was, what will people think about me? Well, in a secular environment where people don't believe in God, so letting them know that you're a Christian does not help you. They think less of you from that. And if you're content with what you're at, why should I go through you know, all that ridicule and have people think bad of me? Uh, so a person content with where they're at, they're not going, to th- not going to be interested in that kind of thing. Whereas you sometimes see these, these uh, sort of people who are in these seminars for healing the wounded inner child. And the people who come to these seminars are eating it up. Well, why are they eating up? Because they have, have all these wounds in the past, and they, they want change. So they're open to whatever. And unfortunately, they buy into what the psychologist tells them about how they could have their life uh, restored. <clears throat> so people who are open to change are quite willing to listen. People who are not open to change, boy, it's just, it's just really hard to make uh, progress there. Uh, so how does one... Uh, make progress in changing, uh, helping a person see that they, they need change. One thing I suggest is be transparent. If you try to be a good testimony, actually what you're doing is you're goody two-shoes and uh, they don't relate to you. Plus, they won't share their struggles if you're not sharing your struggles. Whereas if you're honest with your non-Christian friends and say you're really struggling with something, this is something that, I, that, I'm, that I'm wrestling with uh, and I'm, I don't have success with, I'm trying to, I'm working on it. And the person who, when you're sharing that will open up to you. There's a friend I have who is a professor in the law school, the University of Michigan, quite esteemed professor at the law school. And he and his wife are going through some really serious marital problems. And he shared this with one of his colleagues. And his colleague opened up that their marriage has been in tatters for years. Never would have shared that if, if my friend hadn't been honest with the struggles that he had. And when you're honest about your own struggles, and the person then becomes to be a little more transparent about their own struggles, it turns out, well, actually, they're not quite so content. Things aren't so <laughs> sweet and nice. Uh, and when they're honest about their own struggles, that actually creates more of an openness to change. And if they can see that you actually draw strength and you're dealing with some of the same things they deal with through your faith in God, that, that because maybe, maybe this could help me too. So <clears throat> it gives people a vision for what they could be. Actually, when a person becomes a Christian, they need to be both, the, I need to be a different person than I am, a better person than I am, but also realizing I'm not as good <laughs> as I typically think I am. I'd heard uh, Richard Dahlstrom last night 
and the marriage, this, 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 this sort of the marriage talk about when he was talking about what, the, what Scripture says to husbands and what it says to wives. And uh, oh yeah, the problem's out there. <laughs> it's with the others, it's with the husbands, it's with the wives. You need to read this. <laughs> we tend to sort of minimize the problems in ourselves and put it all outside. But actually, there's deep, deep-seated problems in all of us. And people who think there's no problems and then suddenly start having problems in their marriage, actually, there's deep problems within yourself. It's not the other person. There's problems on both sides that that takes place. And we need to recognize that we're not the kind of people we should be. There needs to be repentance. So the both needs to be embracing the reality of our own self-centeredness and having a vision for what we could become. One thing that happens when a person experiences Christian community, and they likely can be, wow, I like what I see here. There was a person who uh, I had a conversation with about, uh, I guess it was about two years ago, a little over two years ago, and he was an arch skeptic. He was quoting Bart Ehrman about the unreliability of scripture. We had about a half hour conversation together. My wife and I last spring, a year ago this last spring, we're visiting a church we don't normally go to, but a friend of ours had attended that church and was, was sharing in the, and giving a little brief sort of sharing the sermon, and then there was going to be a luncheon afterwards where people could come and talk to them. And they had a baptism that Sunday. And lo and behold, this guy, the student who I talked to, who seemed like the arch skeptic, was being baptized. So I talked to him afterwards, what, what happened? And a significant part of what happened was, well, he had conversations with people like myself, and that helped him. But throughout this whole thing, he was a regular attender at the university group. And why did he attend the university group? He liked what he saw there. He liked the Christians, and he liked being around them. And so that was a, a, a very important draw. Um, so anyway, an example. Encourage them to look at Jesus. Telling your own story is important. So I don't want to minimize that at all. It's just sharing what your own experience is like. People, well, what happened for you? How did you move from this position to that position? How did that uh, take place? And personal testimonies have significant power to them. But it's important that they not simply look to you and the kind of ideas that you've embraced, but look to Jesus and be attracted to him. So one of the best things you can do for a person who is not a Christian is to get them looking at the life of Jesus, what I call an investigative Bible discussion, where you simply look at a chapter in the Gospels and you see what it says there and ask what's going on, what's Jesus doing, why is he doing this, what's he like. Most people will find themselves attracted to Jesus. And in that kind of setting, they're attracted to you because you're showing hospitality and friendship to them. And you're both talking about the faith, but the person's also being attracted to Jesus and not simply being attracted to you. So I think I mentioned on, on Tuesday that people can say, oh, you're a nice person. I don't, Christian, I don't like Christians, but, but you're the exception. <laughs> So that's why it's important for them to not only see you, but to be able to see other people. So it's not that you're a nice person, but to be able to see actually you're being a nice person is connected with the faith that you have. Uh, animosity, dislike. People can have negative experiences with Christians. And the hypocrisy, the, the televangelists who had caught in some sort of a sex scandal, the uh, intellectual straitjacket, the judgmentalism, which is there. As, a, as was mentioned by Richard Dahlstrom last night, if our message is this negative, don't do this, don't do this, I'm against this, I'm against this, 
No, you need to repentance is turning away from what you're against and toward something. And if they don't see what you're, what's where you're draw, drawn toward, then they have this view that it's a bunch of rules and regulations. There was a philosophy grad student at the University of Michigan who was from an uh, atheist family. Uh, she had uh, been raised in uh, St. Petersburg, formerly Stalingrad. And so her parents were staunch atheists, but she kind of believed that God exists. And I had these occasional, every month, a discussion where non-Christians would come and we'd, <clears throat> we'd just collect questions and talk about whatever was sort of they like to talk about related to, to the faith. And this woman who come to believe in God but hadn't come to embrace the Christian faith, she said, why would anybody want to be a Christian? There's so many rules. <laughs> it's all a bunch of rules. Well, part of what may have been behind that is she was living with her boyfriend. And she probably recognized that's a rule. So with all these rules, that may have been part of what lay behind it. But people have this idea that the Christian faith is a whole bunch of rules. And I thought, wow, no, that's, that's not my, my view at all. Yes, they're rules, but they're rules for our good. And to view the Christian faith as being a don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, uh, that's just a warped view of what the Christian life is, is all about. So people have these stereotypes of what Christians are, and that oftentimes lies behind why they, they, they don't believe in God. Uh, and they view faith as being against reason. And no, they're not. Um, if you have faith in another person, hopefully you have good reasons for that faith. And having good reasons to trust a person does not minimize your having faith in that person. Actually, it makes it easier for you to have faith in that person. Having reasons to trust God makes it easier to have faith in him. So it's not as though faith and reason are uh, antagonism towards each other. And they, they, it's important to be able to address some of the questions uh, that they have. The exclusivity of the gospel. When I was in uh, Germany a few years back, I gave a seminar at another an all-German conference. It's not the one I just met in the beginning, but a different all-German conference. And I asked the students to get together in groups of three and discuss amongst themselves what they thought the three biggest issues were that keep people away from Christian faith. Why they don't embrace the Christian faith. These are, these are Christians, but I have the great Christians to talk about, but not, not them, but why they thought they're, they're people that aren't Christians. What, what, what's the three biggest barriers? And to my amazement, all, I think it was six different groups, came up with the same three. They, they labeled them in slightly different ways. But one of them was the problem of evil and suffering. All of them mentioned that. Uh, another one was the science and faith question. How does, how does science and the Bible relate to each other? Maybe sort of evolution, but science and faith, are they at odds with each other? <clears throat> and the third one was this exclusivity of the gospel. How can you claim to have the truth? Worse still, how can you believe the people who don't accept the truth end up in hell? So this exclusivity of the gospel and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and he is the, he, he is the means to, to get to the Father, is a huge issue for lots and lots of people. Um, if we went through Q&A, I'd come back, come back to that if you like. Uh, sexuality can be a major issue. Um, Many Christians end up being very hostile towards homosexuals. And as much as I'm convinced that the scripture teaches against homosexual behavior, it doesn't teach us to be hostile towards them. After all, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus doesn't rail against her, oh, you terrible woman. No, uh, he says, go and sin no more. 
So he, in fact, shows mercy towards her, but in no way is condoning what uh, the, the kind of life uh, that, that she had. Um, the idea of sex only in marriage is increasingly people have sex, most people have sex before they get married. And the age in which they first have sex keeps getting uh, lower and lower. Then there's things about uh, the God of the Old Testament. I did this three-week series this last, uh, a year ago this last uh, winter on what about the Canaanites? God commands the Israelites to go and wipe out the Canaanites. What kind of a loving, merciful God is that? So there's those kinds of issues that need to be wrestled with and, and, and thought about. Uh, thinking about the skeptic. <clears throat> there are several bridges that one can, one can have in to, for, the, for the skeptic. One is, what does the skeptic think about their own personhood? I was in a conversation with a PhD philosophy student at the University of Michigan, and uh, <clears throat> he asked, well, why should I just believe in the things which I can observe and can demonstrate to myself, that I can test? And I asked him, well, do you believe that you exist? Being a philosopher, he knew what I was saying. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's a person there talking to me. That's not the question. <laughs> but do you as a person, this subject that you think you are, does that exist? And there are atheists who would say, no, the subject, the person you think you are, doesn't exist. They would say there, there is a, like a stage of conscious awareness. And different things come into this conscious awareness but it's directed by different parts of the brain. So when you choose we're going to have a lunch, one part of the brain directs that. When you're trying to understand what I'm saying here, another part of the brain directs that. And there is no common self behind it all. There is no self. It's just an illusion. And somehow we have this illusion, this, this idea that there's a self behind it, but there really isn't. There's just a brain that contributes in different ways to it. So there really is no person. But at the same time, I think he could recognize, oh, it does seem reasonable to believe that I really exist. I mean, Descartes said that's the one thing we'll be absolutely certain of. Uh, I think, therefore, I am. So one's own existence seems to be one of the most fundamental things you'd be certain about. But it's something you're not going to discover in a test to. Examine a human brain, you're never going to find the person. In fact, you're never going to find subjective experiences at all. Uh, so conscious mental states, what is a feeling of pain? So if you believe that science is the guide to what was really out there, ask the question, well, is there any feeling of pain or is it just pain behavior? Well, most people say, oh, well, yeah, there is a feeling of pain. Are you sure? Well, yeah, I, I know it. Well, where is it? I think you can't find your brain. And when you're observing yourself, you observe that you wince, you, you make these facial expressions, but what is this conscious feeling of pain? Is there any such thing? And interesting enough, from the categories of science, that doesn't fit at all. There is no, there are no subjective experiences. So you find these brilliant philosophers arguing that really there is no conscious experiences, it's just neural states. We think there's such a thing as a conscious experience, but no, that really is, there really is no such thing. We're just deluded, it's an illusion. Actually, most atheists don't think that's the case. They want to say, well, there, 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 is, there is something. But So there's different approaches the atheists could take. If they believe the physical world's all that's there, they could say there really are no conscious experiences, period. 
Others say, well, no, there are conscious experiences. We, we're, how can I deny their conscious experiences? How can I deny that I actually feel pain? Obviously, I feel pain. If I deny that I feel pain, that's sort of stupid. I mean, how can I deny what I know is obviously true? But they say, well, the subjective experiences is just one side of a two-sided coin. When you look at the coin one way, you see the neural states. When you look at the other side of the coin, you see the, the mental, you have the mental experiences. But being a naturalist, there's nothing but the physical coin. So when you look at one side of the coin and you see the mental experiences, since the, really the coin is all metal, there's no experiences within it, somehow this experience has to be analyzed into the constituents of the coin. And it ends up being that there really is no mental states. It's just our way of thinking about the physical states, and somehow we think it's different, but no, it really does just reduce down to the physical states. Then there are people who say, well, actually, there are mental states, and they're not the same as physical states, <clears throat> uh, and they arise out of physical states. So there's a famous uh, philosopher at Berkeley. He's, uh, I'm not even sure he's still living, but uh, he was a quite famous atheist at, at Berkeley. <clears throat> And he wrote a book called The Rediscovery of the Mind. The Rediscovery, because most of his philosophy colleagues who were atheists were saying the mind doesn't exist. <laughs> no, it obviously does exist. In fact, at the beginning of the book, he says, I've never known any topic around which such brilliant people would argue for a patently absurd conclusion, <laughs> namely that conscious experiences aren't real. They are real. And if they're real, as an atheist, we should acknowledge that they're real. And they're not analyzable down into patterns of neural, neural events. That's, they're, they're not that. So his contention is when you have the brain functioning a certain way, out of that functioning arise mental states. And these mental states aren't reducible down to physical states. They're emergent properties, he says. Well, a problem with that, uh, <clears throat> you probably won't remember all this, but you know, come, come back and ask me, well, what did you say about this? So, the problem with thinking, well, we, we, we just have conscious states arise out of the human physical brain. I don't know how it happens, but it does. If, in fact, you're convinced there's nothing there but the physical brain. So John Searle, this professor at Berkeley, argues there's nothing there but a physical brain, but when it's operating a certain way, you have these emergent properties, which are the, the mental properties. But if there's nothing physics there but the physics then the next state of affairs is determined totally by the physics. If you only got a physical world, then you go from one state of the brain, the next state of the brain, the next state of the brain is, is causally determined by the physical structure of the state of the brain before. The fact that the physical structure might have associated with it or arising from it a feeling of pain, that fact doesn't influence the next state of the brain. It's the physical state that gives rise to the next physical state, gives rise to the next physical state. So the fact that you feel anything at all really has no effect on, the, on your future thoughts because your brain states are all being determined by prior brain states. You think that my thoughts, my feelings, are actually affecting future brain states, but it's not. They're just carried along with the show. But that leads to the very strange conclusion that somehow having feeling of pain has no survival value. It's only the brain states that happen to have this feeling of pain that have survival value because the feeling itself doesn't do anything. There's no causal power to it. It's just an emergent property. Uh, epiphenomena is the word that philosophers sometimes use for, for properties which arise but don't contribute to the future physical states. Uh, and the, the philosopher that uh, I mentioned earlier, 
come back. Well, before I, I'll, I'll come back to him and say, Francis Crick, sort of this materialist view of the world. And this can be a, mo- a motivator for so I don't need God. And say, what do you believe? Well, I'm just a physical animal. I evolved, and you know, that's all. I mean, I'm not you know, quite tight, but if they take that route, Francis Crick got the Nobel Prize for the structure of the, the, human, the human DNA. He says, you, person, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. It's put very bluntly, but it seems to me that is the conclusion that one draws if one ends up being a materialist and says that, that that's, that's what there is. There's really nothing there. Now, he would, uh, he would, he would go against John Searle saying these emergent properties. He would say, they're, all that's real is the, is the physical. Now, Thomas Nagel, <clears throat> atheist philosopher, argues that no, it can't be the case that mental properties are just, uh, emer- that, that mental states are just phys- emergent properties. He says, no, there must be some causal force that they have. And part of his argument for that is to say, when we look at animals, at least all the higher orders of animals, uh, the mammals, reptiles, birds, fish, I think you would give all of those amphibians as having some kind of feeling. So they all have pain receptors and they can feel pain. Now, how far down one animals actually feel pain, I'm not sure. When you're fishing and you put the hook through the worm and the worm wiggles, is the worm feeling pain when you're hooking it? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have any confidence at all that the worm is feeling pain. But I do know that our dog has conscious experiences. If you ever have a dog and you're watching your dog sleep, sometimes it's obvious when the dog is dreaming. This muffled bug and the, the, the feet are you know, chasing after a squirrel or doing something like that in his dream. So dogs have a conscious state like we have conscious states. But if you go along with Thomas Nagel, say all the higher orders of animals have conscious states, there must be some survival value in them. Because if John Searle is right, that actually doesn't causally do anything. And we know there are complex things the brain does that don't result in conscious states. So controlling body temperature and a variety of things like that, your brain does that without entering into conscious awareness at all. So your brain is actually able to do things, complex things, without being conscious. So why is it that all animals, higher animals, have sentience, have have feelings, sensations? So surely it's because they're, they're actually these feelings do something. They have a causal effect. But if they have a causal effect and they cause something, they can't just be emergent properties. They have to be part of what's actually there. So he says physicalism, uh, materialism, is patently wrong. So the subtitle of his book, his Mind and Cosmos, was a book in 2012 by Oxford University Press. The subtitle was why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And almost all atheists I know are convinced that naturalism is almost certainly true. And that's part of why they dismiss the Christian faith and dismiss anything religious because they know there's nothing but the physical there. And all religions embrace something which isn't just simply physical. So they reject all of it. And here's a prominent atheist giving arguments which actually atheists can comprehend and follow, saying that it's almost certainly false, that naturalism is almost certainly false, materialism is almost certainly false. It was interesting watching some of the feedback we got from atheists in response to that book coming out. A second topic is free will. There is a, uh, 
a, a book entitled uh, Free Will by Sam Harris, who's a prominent atheist. He's also argued that the Christian faith is all these terrible things and we ought to get rid of it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a disease, which if we could rid the human race of religion, it would be, the human race would be so much better off. Um, but he, uh, he's, he, he bites the bullet and says, no, we have no free will. It's all an illusion. You've got other people like Daniel Dennett who say we're completely determined, but yes, we do have free will. And I won't try to get, get, get into that. But the question is, do we have any free will? I was one time invited to speak to an atheist student club at the University of California, Santa Cruz. The person who was directing was a grad student whom I got to know. And he invited me to come to their group. And he was himself and seven undergrads. And in the midst of our talking together, I asked how many of them believe that we have free will. The grad student said we don't. By the way, he came from a Mormon background. He said we don't. And one of the other undergrad students said we don't. All the rest of the others say, yes, we have free will. In fact, oftentimes, atheist student clubs are called free thinkers. <laughs> but if they're, if they're materialists, they actually can't be free thinkers. <laughs> because their, 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 their worldview prevents from believing that they have any, any free will. And the problem is not that we, that we have freedom for everything we do. I think most of the things we do, we couldn't do other than what we do. But I think there are times when things are balanced, where you could go either way on something, and that you actually determine which way you go on it. If materialism is true, then everything you do is dictated by the prior state of your brain, by the prior state of your brain, by the prior state of your brain. And at no point do your conscious thoughts even have any directive influence on, on, on your life. And to think that I actually have not had any directive influence on the course of my life is very disconcerting. <laughs> I mean, most people want to think, oh, actually, at least, at least I have some, some credit <laughs> to be able to say I've, I've influenced and directed my life in some way. But the consequence of a naturalist worldview is there is no free will whatsoever and also eliminates moral responsibility. After all, if a person is dictating what they do by prior states of the brain, how can you hold them responsible? Responsibility implies that you could have done otherwise. So there's a great cost in denying free will. Uh, John Searle, who I mentioned at Berkeley, uh, a, friend of me, a friend of mine loaned me a set of, uh, of, of tapes, it was a well, cassette tape era, of a course that he gave in philosophy of mind. And one of the lectures was on free will. And interestingly enough, John Searle said, I believe we have free will. I don't know how it fits into my worldview, but I just, from my own experience, believe that we do. <laughs> so there's a strong motivation to want to believe that we actually have some responsibility, we have some freedom of the will. But if you're a complete materialist, uh, it's, it's very difficult to be able to, to believe that. Moral right and wrong, where do they come from? Uh, <clears throat> uh, I think I'll just, just simply say that for the atheists, there are some things, I mean, Christians and atheists typically agree that moral right and wrong is connected to advancing overall welfare. But how does one define overall welfare? And what kind of obligations does that include? Well, as human beings, it is true that if we're kind to other people, their lives will be better and our lives will be better. So showing kindness to other people actually contributes to the overall welfare of the people you're interacting with. But there's nothing about human nature that says you need to be kind to everyone. <laughs> In fact, it's human nature not to be kind to everyone. But ethics typically says it's not a matter of being kind to the people you like, but ethics has to be kind to people you don't like and taking everybody is worth into consideration. In the West, there was so much influence by the idea that every individual, simply by being a human being, is of great worth, 
that that basically defines what we mean by morality. So if a person says, I'm a moral person, but my moral outlook is to look out for number one, then we say, well, that may be your value and the way you arrange your value system, but it's not a moral system. A moral system has to be one that considers the welfare of everyone. But interestingly enough, that's not true of cultures that haven't been influenced by the, the Judaism and the Christian faith. And within our tradition, everyone's created in the image of God, but you go to other cultures, it's not true that everyone's of great worth simply because they're human beings. In fact, in almost all cultures, there's a difference in worth depending on your gender, your age, your ancestry, your achievements. All these things enter into whether you're a worst person, your, your worth depends on those kinds of things. So the idea that we take as foundational for morality is not universal. So we can't even translate what our, how we, I mean, we mean by moral to other cultures. But most Americans, if they have any sort of, morality does matter to them. So I'm a good person, I don't need God to believe in morality. Well, you don't need God to recognize that being kind and caring towards other people is going to make your life better. But what is it that caused you to be kind and caring towards people that you think are despicable? <laughs> that you think are good? I mean, I mean, people, you politicians, you don't like. You know? uh, should you have kind attitudes towards them? Well, no, no, no. Okay? So it's it, it, moral right and wrong. How can you, how, where does it actually come from? And again, our, our own human happiness depends on believing that what we're doing was for the, was for the greater good. Uh, here's a quote from uh, uh, a, my, my wife was surfing the internet back in 2012, and CNN had a piece entitled, Prominent Atheist Blogger Becomes Catholic. Here was her last blog on this atheist blog site. <laughs> I mean, after all, a blog site to say you've converted <laughs> means that you're not going to be doing any more blogs on their blog site. <laughs> But her last blog on the blog site, uh, she declared that she uh, was becoming Catholic. And in, the, in the, the, the CNN report, it quotes her as saying, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth, not just some sort of code written in the cosmos somehow. Um, I actually believed it was a kind of person as well as truth. And I think that's a significant motivator for many people. And not only can there be the theory and the theoretical need for foundation of it, but they can look to Christians and say, you people have a set of values that I want, that I desire, that I'm attracted to. And your values have a foundation in this God you believe in. I wish my values could have that kind of foundation. Is it true? And if I can believe it's true and, and that it's just, it opens all kinds of doors. So there are bridges that one can use motivationally to get to people who aren't uh, Christians. The harmony of science and biblical faith, I won't uh, get into this, uh, but I, um, one of the distinctions I make is between what I call order of nature miracles and specific point miracles. It's terms I've uh, invented. But the basic idea is that uh, when we look around the world, it seems like science is able to explain the normal functioning of the world without invoking God. God doesn't need to do miracles to sustain birth, or to sustain growth, or to sustain biology. Now, I think God has created an exquisitely ordered universe where he doesn't need to do any order of nature miracles. That he's created a world where things are, are exquisitely ordered uh, at, all, at all levels. Now that doesn't mean it's determined, and most scientists today think that the, the physical world actually is not determined. There's an indeterminacy in it. But when one looks at miracles in the Bible, all the miracles in the Bible are specific point miracles. 
not miracles done to sustain the order of nature, but miracles done for a specific purpose at a specific time. And whether God does that, science is mute with respect to that. Science tells you how things normally happen. If you're a scientist and you're trying to understand development of life from conception to birth, suppose at no point along the way did you ever see a miracle happen. It all follows physical laws. That wouldn't tell you that the virgin birth didn't happen. Rather, it would tell you that would have to be a miracle. Well, yes. Uh, normal birth processes don't involve miracles. And science has shown that the world around us is exquisitely ordered. But that doesn't tell us that God doesn't do miracles at specific times for specific purposes. So the success of science is completely silent when it comes to the question of whether specific point miracles happen. Those you have to ask from a historical standpoint what evidence is for them. So I'll, I'll end on that. I've gone a couple minutes over. Maybe one question before we break, and then we'll head off to lunch. I apologize for not giving you more time for Q&A. I don't know if it's a question or just a statement, but it seems to me, um, and maybe Christians are uh, as guilty as atheists are, but it seems to me that atheists get, has their worldview, and then they try to wrap all of their, all of their thoughts about what really is and what isn't, whether we have free will, they wrap it around the post of uh, their... Right. I, I think everybody does that. They have a, have, a, have a view, and then they sort of get things to fit that, that, that view. But one of the problems for the naturalists, I mean, there's lots of things they can get to fit in it. But when it comes to ourselves as persons, we can't just jettison the idea that I'm a, I'm a person with some unity to it and some continuity that I'm the same person that I was a year ago, even though my experiences are different. There's different. If one rejects the idea of I exist as a person, when one's rejecting something that's really quite fundamental to our sense of identity and worth. So it's not something you can jettison without, without, without huge cost. So some people, in talking about Sam Harris's book, where he's denying free will, he says, he, he says things, it's, it's no big deal. We, we can, well, actually, there are ways in which we'll be more compassionate towards others when we realize others don't have any free will. But I've heard an article say, well, I actually think he's understating the cost, which goes along for embracing, embracing that kind of a view. And I would agree. Maybe I'm a little simplistic, but it just seems to me that um, uh, all of this uh, that we're talking about is um, we've edged educated common sense out of our uh, a, a mental process. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a person who was around the time of David Hume, Thomas Reed, whose philosophy was philosophy of common sense. So David Hume had these all these arguments about there is no, uh, there is no causation, there's just succession events because we never see a cause. And Thomas Reed said, no, we go with common sense. And part of going with common sense for him and common sense believing in, in God. Um, and I think that makes a difference. Um, but it's, it's I mean, just, <clears throat> there, there can be openness to skeptics. But when they're content with where they're at and feeling like everything's fine, but if they recognize their own worldview, it creates serious problems for them. They ought to hope that that worldview is false. So I'll tell them, I'm not, I'm not at all sure I'll be able to convince you that the Christian faith is true. But I think if you follow me, that I'll have a fair chance of being able to persuade you that you ought to hope that naturalism is false. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's false. 
But when you consider the cost that goes with it, you ought to hope it's false. Actually, there are good reasons for believing that it is false. But uh, getting you to believe the Christian faith is true in some ways the negative argument is the easier one. When a person is their grip on sort of, well, of course, this is the way the world is. When that is shaken, then other possibilities rise in terms of being open to consideration. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the friendships and relationships you've given to us, and many of whom are people who do not know you, uh, many of whom feel quite content uh, not being believing in you or going to church. Lord, help us to get to know them, to befriend them, to demonstrate a life that can be attractive to them, not a life within which we sugarcoat our own lives. Where, Lord, help us to be honest with them. But Lord, help us to be able to get to know them better. And Lord, open doors that, that there would be an openness in their heart, in their mind, their lives, to look for something different than what they currently have. Uh, Lord, give them an openness to your truth and eyes to see. And Lord, we know that your spirit is the one who ultimately needs to accomplish that. So Lord, uh, I just pray that you would, you would guide us in our own learning about these things and guide us in the things we say. Well, Lord, thank you that your word is truth and we can have confidence in it. Amen.